crisis in Afghanistan. They couldn't fight. They weren't designed to fight by themselves, and that's uh, that's what's actually happened. Disinformation operations in the Asia Pacific. We know that this phenomenon has touched on Australian online political discourse. And how far-right extremists fundraise online. The way that participating in these ecosystems may not only, you know, make people feel powerful, part of community, give them identity, but it also might be tempting to think that they can make money off it, become uh, celebrities, because that's what a lot of these platforms kind of allow. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Following the collapse of Afghanistan's military and the Taliban's takeover of Kabul, the US and its allies, including Australia, are accelerating efforts to evacuate their citizens and Afghan refugees from the country. Brendan Nicholson speaks to Peter Jennings about how the security situation deteriorated so rapidly, the short and long-term security risks for the country, and how China might engage with the Taliban. Well, Peter, we're seeing some fairly heartbreaking images coming out of the area around Kabul. What do you think of the current situation in Afghanistan? Well, uh, clearly very grim. Uh, I I think people are getting over the shock of the collapse of the Afghan military as fast as it collapsed. And we're starting to get some intelligent analysis that explains perhaps why that was the case. You know, at the end of the day, Brendan, we, we designed an Afghan military around being dependent on a whole bunch of enablers, um, air power, logistics, maintenance, intelligence that had simply been ripped away from them when Biden took the decision to leave as quickly as he did. They couldn't fight. They weren't designed to fight by themselves. And that's uh, that's what's actually happened. What I'm immediately concerned about now, of course, is that situation around the airport where, as uh, President Biden told us uh, multiple times on his last Monday press conference, they have a deal with the Taliban to have access to the airport for a period of time until the end of the month. But of course, the part of that deal is that no allied military forces go outside of the airport. So to get to the airport, you're effectively having to run through a sort of a a gauntlet of Taliban supporters, plus the perhaps tens, if not hundreds of thousands of others who are simply hoping to somehow get themselves onto a flight. And... um, I, I think that gives rise to a number of really concerning possibilities, Brendan. One uh, which David Kilcullen and others have mentioned already is the possibility of a truck bomb into a crowd, uh, something that IS might want to do as the, one of the sworn enemies of uh, the Taliban uh, that would lead to uh, horrendous mass casualties. And uh, as far as I can see, nothing that would prevent that from, from happening. I think a third risk, which um, will become increasingly concerning, uh, is the risk of an an aircraft on takeoff being shot at by a shoulder-fired manpad-style weapon, which has a range of, you know, perhaps one and a half to two kilometres. And um, neither our forces nor the Taliban, I think, have the capacity to prevent that from potentially happening from just a a group of fighters that come into town uh, and see an opportunity. It it may explain, Brendan, why we're seeing combat aircraft take off with um, only half-filled cabins, Um, and that's because they're not refuelling, so um, they they 
they've got half half a tank of gas effectively, and they're taking off to try and get as much elevation as they can, literally before they're off the runway, in order to put some distance between themselves and, and the risk of a shoulder-fired weapon. So, you know, both of those things, I think, gives rise to my way of thinking to some very short-term concerns about what might happen any any time now, uh, a truck bomb, an aircraft, um, an aircraft shootdown. Uh, and then, Brendan, I think as we get towards the end of this time, if, if the end of August is indeed the date, just imagine the situation where there will still be tens of thousands of people around the perimeter of the airport uh, knowing that there's only a few flights left, all of a sudden those forces that have secured the airport have to withdraw because they're going to get on those flights, right? They'll be, uh, uh, they'll be the last people out. And so does that give rise again to situations where we see the, um, the tarmac being overtaken by people who can essentially breach the walls? And if that's the case, how do those aircraft take off? So I, I think in the very short term, there's a lot of really high-risk scenarios at play here, um, not, none of which are particularly positive, and I think all of which point to the folly of uh, Biden believing that you can cut a deal with the Taliban, which somehow enables an orderly withdrawal. It, it, this could all end very badly, it, it seems to me. Yes, well, on that subject, Peter, we're, we're hearing from the Taliban uh, a message that they keep repeating that they've changed, that there won't be reprisals and that women, women and girls will be safe and treated well. At the same time, we're hearing some, some dark echoes from places further away from the capital of massacres and uh, of young girls being taken as, as brides for the fighters. Do you believe the Taliban message can be, can be believed? I don't personally believe it. Um, I've, I've seen nothing that suggests to me that that's the case. It may well be true that there's a somewhat more sophisticated political leadership, uh, a number of those people. The top leaders, I don't think, have actually arrived from Doha yet. By the way, Doha was referred to by Biden once as Hado uh, in his, uh, his last press conference. But the top leadership hasn't come in from Doha yet. They they may be attempting to try to establish a longer-term political control for themselves and want to deal with foreign countries. But that's not who their fighters are. And at the moment, it's the fighters that are doing the uh, patrolling of uh, the suburbs of Kabul, even not just beyond Kabul, looking for brides, so-called brides for, for uh, uh, Taliban fighters. And frankly, we all know what that means. Um, uh, and they're the ones who I think are going to be sort of handing out rough justice through through the country. Um, I don't think that the central leadership of the Taliban have them sufficiently under control to guarantee that, you know, here is now the democratic Taliban or the more liberal Taliban. And it seems to me that if the Taliban is pressured in any way, um, they will revert back to what we know them to be, which is extremely tough, brutal people when, when they're dealing with, with captives. So I, I don't think it's th that guarantee from the Taliban is worth the paper that it, that it doesn't appear to be written on. I think it's just what we're actually seeing here is the Taliban uh, getting rid of a whole bunch of troublesome non-Afghans, uh, non-Afghan citizens, who will be harder to kill in the sense that, that there will be more consequences for doing that. 
and once that lots out, um, I, I think it will be back to pretty much a more normal Taliban approach, uh, which, which is not going to be pleasant. You mentioned the possibility of an atrocity like a, a truck bomb attack, and it does seem frighteningly possible. Where do organisations like al-Qaeda and Islamic State fit into this? Well, um, I think they have um, a situation that will become open to them, a bit, a bit like what happened before um, uh, 2000 when um, al-Qaeda was able to establish itself in, uh, around the Tora Bora Caves in Afghanistan in a, in a fairly remote location to recruit jihadis and practice their, their military tactics. Uh, the Taliban, frankly, is going to be no more able to prevent that type of situation happening on the ground than the Afghan military was, uh, because that's just the nature of Afghanistan. There's, once you get outside of the capital and the main cities, there's very little in the way of control that can be established, I think, over, um, over rural and regional areas. So Afghanistan is not simply a training ground. It also has a bit of symbolic importance to these groups as the place from which where the Al-Qaeda uh, World Trade Centre and Pentagon attacks took place. Uh, I, I think it's going to be a bit of a magnet for, for those groups and with all of the consequences that comes with that organised crime, weapons dealing, highly um, uh, extremist ideologies being promoted. And uh, although the Taliban, frankly, there's no love lost between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and indeed between the Taliban and Islamic State, that doesn't mean to say that they won't get those groups and others like them won't, won't be able to make use of, the, uh, of Afghan territory to recruit and train and propagandise. And the, the Haqqani network appears to be very influential at the moment. Now, this is an organisation with strong criminal roots as well as uh, nationalistic roots or whatever whatever else they might have what sort of what do you what do you think their strong involvement actually means I, I think it's a it's a play back to the um, the good old days of um, uh, wanting to be able to make money out of Afghanistan which could be the drug trade that initially the Taliban started out not supporting but ultimately saw as a source of wealth uh, I think there's big money which is potentially available over a medium sort of term time frame for access to Afghanistan natural resources, of which rare earth elements is going to be a significant one. And you could see, I think, already the ground being laid by the Taliban leadership to talk to China about having, get, get, for money, getting, getting them access to those types of resources. So let's not pretend that what we've got here is a bunch of people that are motivated purely by uh, a medieval interpretation of the Quran. They're motivated by making money. They're motivated by power. That um, they will be keen to find those things in in all areas. And I think, with little sense of um, concern about what that might mean for the for the broader Afghan population. Well, Russia and China must be standing on the sidelines watching this all with great interest. Who do you think the Taliban will turn to? They're obviously going to need some international partners. They've got Pakistan. Well, the Chinese are cashed up and uh, already talking to the Taliban even before the fall of Kabul. We had the meeting uh, with uh, one of the senior Taliban, uh, Taliban leadership and the uh, Chinese foreign minister, which on the face of it, you might think is a remarkable about face for a country like the PRC, which has been so determined to um, tramp down on anything that hints of fundamentalist terrorism. Um, 
But I think for China, the lure of what Afghanistan has to offer is is just irresistible. And, and really, that's three things. Uh, one is to sort of relish in the failure of the US and the West in what can only be accounted as a, a massive defeat after a 20-year effort. Um, the second, as I say, is access to those raw materials, uh, which um, you know are, are largely... Um, untapped in Afghanistan and which China will um, hope to be able to get uh, first access to. And then the third benefit for China is geographic. China already has probably its closest overseas partner in a defence and security sense uh, is Pakistan. Uh, it's building closer uh, connections to Iran. Now you have the country that separates those two. Uh, and so if China is looking to cement a position for itself as the dominating power in Central Asia. Well, I think this is what the uh, alignment with the Taliban would um, enable them to aim for. Uh, and of course, it also pressures India, uh, which is, you know, a country as a superpower that um, potentially is a risk to China going forward. Uh, and a great deal of Chinese strategy with regard to India is about how it positions itself around India's periphery. So I think uh, China has the money and the motive, uh, to coin a phrase, Brendan, and I think they will be the uh, will attempt to make themselves the first partner of choice for, for, for the Taliban. Well, just the, the last point, what does this mean, the rapid Taliban victory and the, the speed of the, um, the, the government collapse? mean for the Biden administration and for us in the Indo-Pacific? Well, I don't think any American ally can take comfort from this to say, well, isn't that fantastic because now we're done with the Middle East and that means America is going to be a more formidable opponent of China uh, or, or indeed any of the other authoritarian players. On the contrary, what it, what it shows is uh, an America which is still, I think, largely inward-looking, very averse to... Um, finding itself in foreign wars of any any variety, uh, having much higher expectations of what friends and allies should be able to do before Uncle Sam is called on to provide some sort of security assistance. And then finally, when push comes to shove, when you are really in desperate situations and you're trying to head for the exit in America, which really has no concern for anything it has done with any friend or ally, it's simply going to look after itself. That is the America that has been delivered to us, I think, through a consequence of four years of Trump and now six months of Biden. And, um, uh, you know, where that takes us, who knows, other than to say that I think Australia's instincts and Japan's instincts and the instincts of America's allies everywhere will be to try to stop that slide. And so what we need now is an opportunity to have a serious talk between the Allies and the Americans about what are we going to do about global security going forward? You know, there was no consultation worth the name over Biden's plans for Afghanistan, absolutely none. We, we can't allow that to repeat when it comes to dealing with Taiwan, for example. Uh, and I would expect, therefore, probably behind closed doors, a lot of tough talking is going to take place over the, the rest of this year between America and its Allies to determine how serious we are about each other's security interests and, and how we can lend more confidence to each other's behaviour as we as we think about those future challenges. Peter, thanks very much. Thanks, Brendan. Sorry I can't be more cheerful for you today. No. Governments across the globe are grappling with how to deal with disinformation for hire operations and cyber-enabled foreign interference. 
The challenges posed by disinformation operations in the Asia-Pacific region are explored in the new ASPI report, Influence for Hire. Dr. Jake Wallace, Ariel Bogle and Albert Tseng discuss the dangers of a manipulated information environment and how policymakers should respond. I'm Jake Wallace. I lead the Information Operations and Disinformation Programme here at ASPE and I'm joined by my colleagues Ariel and Albert, with whom uh, I've worked on our latest publication, which is all about influence for hire in the Asia-Pacific region. Albert, I'm wondering if you can help um, our listeners get their head around this phrase that we're throwing around, influence for hire. What what does that mean and what kind of, of market does that imply? Mm. Thanks, Jake. Well, the term influence for hire is a label um, for like, multiple types of activities. Some of those might include commercial spam networks, which Ariel looked at in her chapter. Um, they might include sort of black PR firms, so public relations firms, Um, which are hired by state actors to um, message a particular idea or ideology. And that also includes content farms, which is something that um, I looked at in our chapter for the report. So what are content farms? There are sort of three distinctive features about content farms, which sort of define that category. So firstly, um, these content farms um, usually lack transparency around the organisation, as well as the writers who produce content for these type of websites or um, accounts on social media. Um, they may also lack an editorial policy or, um, or evidence or uh, information about who's funding them directly. The second feature about these content farms is that they usually produce sort of low quality content because their main incentive is to drive a, little, a large amount of content out as, as quickly as possible as well. So these two features take good just investigative journalism <clears throat> to sort of investigate around, really. And then the last feature is the fact that, yep, trying to produce as much content as they can, they sort of present difficulties for researchers to be analysed because there's so many articles being published and being shared around various social media platforms. So this volume of content is something that um, we've looked to try and um, address and so with our partners at DoubleThink Lab in based in Taiwan, we've developed um, some novel uh, quantitative methods to analyse articles at scale. And so this methodology involves taking articles from a content farm and extracting out the main or key terms or entities, as we call it, in the computational linguistics community. And we take these entities and we compare them against these entities used in Chinese state media or diplomatic statements as well. And by compa- this comparison lets us um, identify periods of time where there might be more similarity in the words or the events that these content farms uh, report on with Chinese state media itself. Thanks, Albert. That's really helpful because part of the challenge here is finding uh, innovative approaches to studying this topic. And we've we realised some time ago that this was a really interesting space to explore when we started to identify networks of social media accounts within uh, disinformation data sets associated with the People's Republic of China. And within those really large-scale state-linked information operations, we could see that there were networks of accounts from places like Indonesia, Bangladesh, even Russia. So... That gave us um, some evidence that there was this um, underground shadow economy in uh, influence that could 
be um, that could be used by state actors to obfuscate their disinformation campaigns. But there's this is a very grey area, Ariel, isn't it? Because we've also looked at um, political campaigns in Indonesia that overlap with um, e-commerce and even um, kind of. Um, uh, lobbying by um, particular industry groups. You you did some work on, on that in an Indi- Indonesian context, didn't you? Yeah, so towards the end of last year, I was really interested in environmental disinformation because, of course, it's a very fraught space with a lot of different actors with vested interests in it. And in Indonesia in particular, there's a big fight going on over palm oil, which is a significant commodity produced there, and a I suppose, a battle over the narrative of palm oil, whether it uh, be pressure from environmental groups or the European Union over sustainable palm oil and labour practices, etc. And I came across a Twitter network that was using a hashtag which translates roughly as what's up with the BBC uh, in late November. And what this network seemed to be doing is coordinating in some fashion to push back against a report from the BBC which looked at deforestation for Papua or plantations in Papua. But when you look, took a look at these networks, they seem to be interested in a lot of different things. So they, of course, tweeted a lot about palm oil on this particular day at the same time, but they were also tweeting very consistently about certain e-commerce websites, about various uh, what seem to be government-linked campaigns, such as the vaccination drive in Indonesia and other themes. And so the evidence kind of suggests that perhaps this was a network that offered its services to promote different campaigns, uh, you know, depending on who was interested. So, I mean, we couldn't definitively attribute this network, but it's certainly part of a growing industry in the Asia-Pacific, in countries like Indonesia, where the kind of techniques of influence operations uh, that might be linked to state actors also trickle down into local political parties, local political campaigns, and of course, to private industry too. Is there actually a problem here? I mean, is there a difference between legitimate political campaigning and advertising on the one hand and inauthentic influence on the other? Yeah, it's a great and difficult question because certainly a arguably a grey line sometimes between the two. So here in Australia, political parties are of course campaigning extensively on social media now, on YouTube, via Google advertising. You might see an ad pop up during an election campaign, you know, on on like a game of Tetris on your mobile phone. You might see ads on Facebook and Twitter. And of course, there are a lot of other different vested interests in a political campaign, advocacy groups, lobby groups, uh, community organisations who are all playing in this space too. I guess ultimately the main difference is one of transparency. I mean, here in Australia, of course, if you fund a political ad during an election campaign, you're required by law to say that you funded it, who funded it, who paid for it, who's behind it. But I... I would argue we're sort of entering a difficult space here in Australia because of the range of players and also because of the lack of law around truth in political advertising. So obviously what is truth is a very um, philosophical question, particularly (laughs) when it comes to an election campaign. And so I don't envy uh, the task of any government body that would ever be tasked with with the job of determining what was truthful about an ad. But I do think we need to look closer at this picture because a lot of political parties and all those interest groups I mentioned before are slowly taking on the techniques, I think, of influence operations, really appealing to emotion uh, and using the kind of 
mimetic kind of communication and things like that. So it's certainly something we're going to have to tackle here in Australia, especially as we lead up to the next election, likely in 2021, 2022, rather. Absolutely. And I think that's a really good point because we know that this phenomenon has touched on Australian online political discourse. So in the last federal election, the 2019 federal election, financially motivated operators uh, from Kosovo, um, Albania and the Republic of North Macedonia were running really large um, social media groups and were driving engagement in those groups using kind of hyper-nationalistic, at times Islamophobic content uh, and uh, they were seeding those environments with um, hyperlinks through to off-platform content farms that would generate advertising revenue. So even in um, a, ro a, relative, a comparatively robust democracy with uh, strong civil society and uh, independent media, those actors can still uh, target the heightened political engagement and political sentiment that occurs around an election period. And and that, I, that also yep. gets, I think, the financial incentives offered by these platforms. Often when we're looking at influence for hire, we're looking at big picture kind of looking at the way uh, groups or networks might be pushing a certain ideological position, uh, maybe linked to a state's priorities. But often I think we need to just look at the money that can be made. Because there's, there's an industry here, a disinformation for higher industry here, because there's money to be made, whether it be via uh, advertising, by clicks, in the case of click farm, kind of content farms that Albert was talking, talking about before. And then, of course, the paycheck you might get from somebody to run a campaign like this. <laughs> and... and there's a really interesting nexus emerging here. Uh, in some instances, content farms see that there is financial gain to be had from mirroring the um, propaganda from significant state actors, and that, that's a phenomenon that we've explored in, in some of our work on uh, content farms targeting Taiwanese political discourse. But I think that... Um, in the report, what we're really trying to highlight is that this is a particular concern for the Asia-Pacific region, given that it has uh, really high rates of digital uh, penetration, dig digital connectivity, um, rapidly, some of the world's fastest growing economies, has more than half of the world's millennial population. And those factors in combination suggest that it's ripe for, for disruption. It's also going to be the nexus of great power competition for the next decade. So we, we feel, I, I think, part of what we were trying to highlight is that there is a real opportunity here for industry to work with governments in the region, because this is a really complex operating environment, particularly for the social media platforms who are having to work across really complex, uh, politically, linguistically, culturally diverse markets. Um, and uh, they also have to, the kind of the buck stops with the social media platforms, they have to take responsibility for enforcement action. So what we are what we're proposing uh, in some of the recommendations for the report are really structures that can enhance the cooperation and um, the collaborative uh, approach to developing solutions that governments and industry could make together if if such structures were in place. And one of those structures is a, is something like a, a, 
an Asia-Pacific focus centre for democratic resilience that could bring government, industry and civil society stakeholders together to uh, generate solutions that reflect the diversity of the region. Finally, Dr Tegan Westendorf speaks to Ariel Bogle about her new report, Buying and Selling Extremism, which explores the online funding ecosystem for right-wing extremist content in Australia. So great to chat to you today, Ariel. I really enjoyed your recent report. And I might kick off with a question about the platforms that you covered. There seems to be a lot of variety. Like I was really surprised at how much variety there was. And I think that's really concerning from a policy perspective of seeking to control, monitor and regulate funding of violent extremist activity. So can you tell us a bit more about these platforms? Yeah, you're right. There really was a broad range. And I I think that speaks to a few different factors which we can get into a bit later, including the way that far-right content has been pushed off more mainstream platforms, mainstream funding platforms as well. So there's really a diversity here. So I guess key to this would be the live streaming and video hosting platforms. So some emerging kind of live stream platforms like DLive and Entropy. These are platforms that let you stream video and viewers can essentially tip the the content producer as they're filming. Um, There are also other platforms like Odyssey or Odyssey and BitChute, which have kind of monetized themselves either through cryptocurrencies, but also through just uh, linking up with payment providers like PayPal and Patreon, etc. Mm-hmm. I saw some subscription platforms people might be familiar with, like Patreon and Subscribestar, which let people make monthly uh, donations or monthly payments in exchange for extra content or extra sort of services. Of course, a range of cryptocurrency wallets, uh, also micropayments and donations to websites like Buy Me a Coffee and Ko-Fi, which are or coffee, uh, which essentially let you buy coffees, quote unquote, for people in exchange, you know, to reward them for the content they produce, as well as like the kind of more typical things you might expect on websites like uh, merchandise, donation widgets, and also just PayPal pages where you can just send people money. So really a broad range, you're right. It's interesting. I have seen some discussion in counterviolent extremism um, research about opportunities to look into the gamification of CVE programming, sort of on the idea that because people are so vulnerable to these kind of um, extremist narratives and conspiracy theories on account of the you know wealth of myths and disinformation that we're, we're experiencing today and the fact that it's so hard for people to validate the information that they're consuming, this almost makes me think that as much as this is a real vulnerability because it's clearly being so exploited by violent extremist um, ideologies and narratives, do you think there would be any option to sort of look into this in terms of counter-engagement? Is this another way that counter-engagement could reach people through the same kind of methods or is that a bit sort of fanciful and um, aspirational? Well, I think, I mean, my paper certainly doesn't seek to answer that question. So I think there's definitely a lot more work that can be done in this space to investigate that question. I'm thinking of some work by Dr. Cynthia Miller-Idris, who I referenced in the paper. Her book, Hate in the Homeland, really talks about I suppose, gateways and the way that you might encounter uh, far-right or right-wing extremist material on the internet or in public life, you know, at the gym. Like, it's not like people necessarily have to go out and seek this material to encounter it. They might just casually encounter it in in sort of everyday online activity 
and uh, it, it's like the persuasiveness of it or the way they keep seeing it that might, I suppose, push them down a kind of rabbit hole, to use the cliché. Mm. I want to emphasize that most of these providers, payment platforms, gaming systems that I talk about in the report, we're not built for far-right content, but they're being sort of used and exploited by these kinds of actors. So mm. when we think about policy solutions, we need to keep that in mind. But I certainly do think that uh, people that work in the countering violent extremism space uh, might want to pay some attention to the way that participating in these ecosystems may not only, you know, make people feel powerful, part of community, give them identity, but it also might be tempting to think that they can make money off it, become uh, celebrities, because that's what a lot of these platforms kind of allow. I, I found that really fascinating that you mentioned in your report this sort of influencer style approach on um, producing and inviting financial support for content. And I'm actually going to pull out a really great quote where you said that the online funding system has proven really lucrative for some people at key moments that could also lead people to making right-wing extremist content simply to court money and attention rather than due to ideological commitment. And I think there were also some references to the extraordinary amounts of money that were made by certain key figures in the January 6 riots. So I thought this was really interesting because a fierce part of this threat is its asymmetry, the ways that it can blur into legitimate or non-criminal discourse and through that gradually shift what used to be very fringe ideas much closer to what's considered mainstream and accepted. And that's sort of before we even consider the more overt blurring of legitimate politics um, and increasing evidence of state funding into certain groups such as, you know, Russia's potential interest in funding far-right groups as part of a broad destabilisation campaign in the EU and the US. So in terms of right-wing extremist actors positioning themselves as content creators and influencers in order to leverage this blurring through online platforms, can you tell us a bit more about how these funding requests are framed and do people respond well to it? Yeah, it's an interesting thing to look at. I mean, if we look at the history of far-right groups, especially when they were clearly defined groups and sort of the evidence suggests they no longer are, there's more of this like a decentralised post-organisational, quote-unquote, is the way that some people refer to it. Uh, certainly when they were defined groups, they were often pretty defined means of collecting money, such as paying membership dues, you know, getting the monthly magazine, paying for merchandise. And certainly some of that still exists. But when it comes to these online funding requests, I generally found them framed in either of two categories. I mean, the first being a request for a purpose, like I need support so I can pay legal fees or I need to print some banners for X event or protest. The second category was more loosely uh, what I might call a kind of influencer model. I think we're all familiar with social media influencers at this point. You might think of a wellness influencer or some kind of fitness guru who asks for or encourages people to financially support them so they can continue the creation of their content and build community off that content. And it's pretty similar, to be honest. I mean, in the Telegram channels in my sample, some of the people running those channels had regular shows that they live streamed on YouTube, DLive, Entropy, etc., and encouraged people to support their content. I mean, often the framing was really, if you like what I'm making, you want to see more of it, throw me a dollar. That's kind of the way it was framed. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting, too, to see uh, the way people manoeuvred across these platforms because 
YouTube has uh, in recent years cracked down to an extent on far-right content on the platform. That doesn't mean it's necessarily removed accounts. In some cases, they've nearly demonetized the account, removed their ability to run advertising and get money that way, also removed their ability to uh, ask for super chats. This is this way on YouTube you can essentially allow your viewers to pay to get their comments on your live stream more uh, sort of uh, more amplified more clearly seen by other viewers and so they no longer have access to that but they can use a service like entropy to port their stream into a new platform and keep uh, continuing to collect donations that way mm-hmm. so uh, you know it was quite a sophisticated ecosystem when it comes to being a far-right influencer you can't just rely on just youtube anymore you probably need at least three different live streaming platforms to uh, make sure you're still being able to collect money so in terms of this deplatforming and demonetization trends, um, is this then pushing this activity deeper into darker, less regulated parts of the internet, which if that's the case, it's, I think, defensible and appropriate that that's not tolerated on these mainstream platforms. But does this then mitigate one threat being the mainstreaming of ideas due to mainstream platform promotion, but exacerbate another one in enabling this global connections and local recruitment in what sounds like the echo chamber that we've heard in discussions about QAnon. And is this more of a threat? Is this a necessary evolution in the way that this is sort of squeezed out of the internet? This is a really difficult one. I mean, certainly a lot of researchers who examine uh, sort of far-right content or conspiracy theory content, disinformation on social platforms, do feel like deplatforming when those, when you know, groups that spread QAnon, conspiracy theories, for example, are removed from Facebook, that that is a net good because the interaction with the wider public is lessened. But mm-hmm. it does necessarily push people into less uh, to sort of more closed spaces, potentially less moderated spaces, and I think that something similar here is happening with funding mm-hmm. because obviously a lot of the platforms, uh, the pub, sort of uh, mainstream platforms, have strong policies against hate speech, at least as they're written, as they're enforced. That's another question. And generally, when we look at online content and payment platforms, they have rules, but they generally grant themselves considerable flexibility when it comes to interpreting and enforcing them. And in general, when they have deplatformed or demonetized people historically, that's come after you know extreme public pressure. So we can look at the way a lot of uh, far right figures were demonetized following the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017. I think I mean I would want to emphasize here this can't come all from the top. We still need considerably more transparency and accountability from these payment providers because it can go the other way too. I certainly wouldn't want to say that uh, we should just be removing content, you know, or removing people's ability to access these services uh, Mm. based on the whims of one private company. We really need more transparency and accountability and more, uh, I suppose, dialogue and conversation with these platforms because at the moment we're kind of in the dark. A a lot of different groups have asked for considerably more transparency from the likes of PayPal, for example, as well as Visa and MasterCard. So, when we, you know, so we can better understand the ecosystem here, but also understand when people's accounts are wrongly removed. Because it is, it is a considerable uh, step, I think, 
to remove somebody's ability to collect money. You know, it really gets at the heart of um, some of these payment platforms. Thank you so much, Ariel. No worries. That's a wrap on this episode. This week, you heard conversations with Brenda Nicholson, Executive Editor of The Strategist, and Peter Jennings, Aspie's Executive Director, Dr. Jake Wallace, Head of Aspie's Information Operations and Disinformation Program, and Albert Zhang, Aspie Researcher, Dr. Tegan Westendorf, Analyst with Aspie's Strategic Policing and Law Enforcement Program, and Ariel Bogle, Analyst with Aspie's International Cyber Policy Center. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.